now we're 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 propelling forward quickly you know and it's it's you you have tension when you try to push forward this fast but i don't think these things are long i don't feel big change has to take forever the whole context of a marathon sure you know we have the arc of justice i get it but there are moments where we got to sprint inside that marathon this is the visible voices podcast i'm your host dr risa lewis before we get started Here's a word from the host and creator of Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, listeners. For the record, I really don't like brunch that much. However, I do really like Podcast Brunch Club. Today, I'm bringing you my conversation with Dr. Aletha Maybank. Aletha is the inaugural Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President for the AMA, the American Medical Association. She has a history of being a founder. Specifically, she was the founding director for the Center for Health Equity at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, and also the Office of Minority Health in the Suffolk County Department of Health Services. Now, in our conversation, we reference two important publications that have come out from the AMA under her leadership, specifically the Organizational Strategic Plan to Embed Racial Justice and Advance Health Equity, and also Advancing Health Equity, a Guide to Language, Narrative, and Concepts. Now, ahead of the program, we talked about voice, and as you know, audience, by now, two of my signature questions are, when did you first realize you had a voice, and when did you start using that voice? And regarding both, Aletha referenced her mother. Aletha said that she really started using her voice when it came to working in advocacy and the public health space. Let's get to the conversation. Have you been surprised at people, healthcare, physicians, lack of awareness, lack of education regarding health equity? I have been surprised, probably because I come from the space of public health. I've spent most of my career in governmental public health. Public health, you know, it's more so rooted within the lines of social justice. Not to say that public health at all is perfect in any way. It still has hierarchy, still has white supremacy culture, all of it. Um, However, they were more in tune to talking about all this. I had already, you know, been a part of collaborators and collectives across the country that had established years ago on health equity and racism, even most explicitly. But coming to healthcare, they, it was definitely behind <laughs> compared to other disciplines. I, that it did surprise me some. I didn't realize that difference, and so the starting point has been extremely different. Yeah, I think a lot of people not in healthcare, not in medicine, don't understand that actually medicine is quite traditional. And you mentioned the word hierarchical and very, very, very slow to change. Um, I often quote a Harvard Business Review article about technology that even proven technologies that get flipped overnight, say in Silicon Valley, it'll take 15 years for things to be established and change within medicine or in a hospital system. So it's slow, it's traditional, it can be conservative. And I, I think this last year, the pandemic that we're still working our way through. Uh, I talk about it ripping off the scab of what we in medicine have known is going on, 
the rest of the the world perhaps didn't in American healthcare, I would say. But also, I think it was very easy to slide by and not be aware if you're a physician. I think that's right, and I, you know, I, you also have to look at parallels. You know, the narrative in this country around health is so deeply aligned with healthcare, not a broader context. And so then that power lies with us historically as physicians. Now that has broadened um, in terms of who has power within the healthcare delivery system to pharma and, you know, all the hospitals and healthcare systems and all of that. Um, but, but that has meant something um, in terms of how far we have been able to and not been able to progress, I think, as a country um, in advance because we are not as progressive as we could be, and I think should be from the healthcare context. And because so much of our narrative is rooted in that, so much of the power and decision-making are rooted amongst those folks within the healthcare delivery system, it impacts our ability to do things like paid leave, you know, all of that. And so it's not only the impact on medicine, I think it's the impact on just our entire society. And Speaking of AMA, we have to look at the roots of the Flexner Report of 1910 and how that was structured and um, how that influenced and revolutionized at that time, but completely influenced the kind of education that physicians had to be fully rooted in just the basic and clinical sciences and not all this other context around health. I'm smiling because it's as if you're reading my notes because you're leading me right into the questions that I want to ask. So I've written down AMA Flexner Report, but also... The apology by Ronald Davis in 2008 uh, from the AMA for the exclusion of Black physicians. And again, the audience may not be aware of exactly why the AMA hasn't always been received with open arms and isn't always, hasn't always been, hasn't always connoted positivity. And that's not where we are today. But it wasn't until 2008 that the AMA apologized for the exclusion of Black physicians. Do you have any reflection on that? Yes, I mean, and I would say, you know, I, there's still folks, and rightfully so, that don't look highly upon the AMA, and I think they need that accountability, and that needs to be continually there, um, because they do have so much influence, and they still have so much work to do. I'm there, and I think any historically white institution has a lot of work to do. So I named that. Um, I, it's, you know, over 100 years that it was on the record that there was exclusion of Black physicians and that there was policy that did not change that until the 1960s. And really that happened because of civil rights legislation. Um, and so AMA then at that point of time formally um, in policy integrated. So it's egregious, right? And it's not the only thing that AMA has done historically. Um, and looking at the apology in 2008, um, Ron Davis, you know, he was a black physician, a wonderful physician. I never had the opportunity to meet, but I hear such amazing things on his leadership and courage um, to really push forward that apology at that time. And then the reality is, is after the apology it kind of fell a little bit again in terms of not doing as much as AMA probably could during that time. And then uh, probably about five years, six years ago, um, based on some of the advocacy, again, amongst the members within AMA. Um, actually, Dr. Harmon, Jerry Harmon, who's president now, was chair at that time. It's chaired and started the task force on health equity. And that's it's like the recommendations of that task force that recommended for a Center for Health Equity and a Chief Health Equity Officer. 
Um, so now we're, we're, we're propelling forward quickly. Um, you know, and it's, it's, you, you, you have tension when you try to push forward this fast, but I don't think these things are long. I don't feel big change has to take forever. Um, the whole context of a marathon, sure. You know, we have the arc of justice. I get it. But there are moments where we got to sprint inside that marathon. I'd love to hear a little bit more about these sprints. Uh, what do you see for 2022? Yes, I think now, you know, we so we have the strategic plan that was launched. We also have a narrative guide um, that was launched about a month ago um, to really, again, help push how people understand these inequities and the root causes of them. We can do the technical pieces of the work, but if culture doesn't change and culture doesn't shift, then that shifts based on our beliefs um, and that changes our actions, then we don't move forward either. And actually that document created way more resistance than the strategic plan did and way more feedback um, and pushback across the nation. There are certain entities that picked it up in the news media and it went wild. And it actually came to the point where it's brought risk to my life um, and to some others. So, you know, I think for 2022, our goal is, is how do we demonstrate more so an action of what healthcare systems or folks in, connected in the healthcare ecosystem can actually do. Um, and so our, our projects and efforts and initiatives that are being launched are fully rooted more so at the intersection of supporting healthcare systems. Um, I can't say them fully because they're not launched yet, um, but that's that's the focus. How do we engage with healthcare systems to get them to fully embed in, in actual practice um, and then also spurring kind of some other campaigns of action, um, not only with healthcare systems, but with payers, um, with other physician associations as well. Putting out other guides where we have a little bit of focus on emergency preparedness and, and what does it mean to center equity in that to provide support around that. Um, you know, we'll continue to work with our own teams at the AMA and they're, they're submitting their own equity plans and and um, we'll have some movement, movement and momentum around that. We'll release an annual report around the time of June to kind of really speak to the progress that we have and, and what to anticipate moving forward. Why do you think the more recent publication was met with more resistance, more tension? Because it's talking about narrative. Narrative, narrative, you know, we're talking about how do you shift and change dominant narratives, dominant narratives around that that are so foundational, not just in medicine, our country, about the context of individualism, right? Or the myth of meritocracy that you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. People in power don't want people to know that that's not the case. That's not really true, but it's put out there. If you work hard enough, you'll get what you get. But so many folks have embraced that and it's just not even true. And so power, once they start to recognize that these narratives actually could mean something and actually shift how people think and make decisions, then there's going to be pushback. It's the same reason why we see pushback of critical race theory across the country and legislation pop up. And critical race theory is mentioned in the document. So that's actually probably the bigger reason why it received the, the pushback. But it's all about narrative. And that's a, it's a narrative. I mean, critical race theory, I could probably mention it less, right? It's just the way to examine how racism shows up and how, and racism is, is the context of saying it's something that structures opportunity, right? And assigns value based on skin color. If we want to break it down even further, if that's more digestible for people. But um, 
you know, I think it's, it's just a part of kind of the societal moment of when there is progress being made and recognized as it relates to any kind of equity, there is always this counter um, force that does not want that to happen, does not want to see um, people move away from the power that they have. And the way to help support that is to instill fear in the people who actually don't even have power in the first place, you know, and are actually acting oftentimes out of their, against their own self-interest and don't even realize it. So, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, the more I do this, it's actually, it becomes really sad um, because all of this, you know, Bell Hooks passed away the other day, right? And last year I gifted all about love to my entire team because what can happen in this space is the over-intellectualization of harm and justice. And then you can start to lose center of why we're doing this in the first place. And it is out of love for ourselves and people bottom line. And it's, if that's what it is and we're not doing that and we can't express that and we can't appreciate that and we can't love justice for all, then you know, where do we go? How do we do it? It's just, it's an uphill battle. I try to contextualize like my experience and, you know, in the context of this whole arc. Um, But it's still hard and sad that you're still fighting for freedom and justice and just love. When you threaten the status quo and that, you know, culture change, that narrative of the reality of how things really are and having people look truly in the mirror They don't like what they see. They don't like what they hear. It makes them very uncomfortable. And that's when you see those in power resist. What you shared is not light. And um, I want to thank you and just say that it is unsurprising yet horrible that this resistance, this tension has been met with perhaps, uh, I don't know what, but uh, what are you doing to make sure you are safe and that your position and and, and the AMA is, is supportive of you? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the AMA has been um, great. You know, they've had they've taken the steps of, of what it takes to help protect a, an employee. And, you know, the way it works is people probably don't even fully realize, you know, you, they have to hire a security firm. And, you know, I have folks, another group that I'm talking about safety plans and creating safety plans, you know, and getting all my papers together. You know, my mother has all her papers together, but honestly, I hadn't had all my papers together, you know, in terms of end of life papers and all of that. But all those things, I guess I'm I'm coming of the age to have to think about it, but I just hadn't um, and put them together. But then there's also like plans of where I have to go. Like, so if I have to drop and leave everything, where do I have to go? And I've had some wonderful friends who've reached out and okay, where this, this is your place. This is your place. My family's from Antigua. So I got, I have places to go. But it's just to have the consciousness around that. And then even as I move about, you know, I have to make sure somebody knows where I am from the time I go to the time I get to a certain place. It's all part of kind of my safety planning. Um, And then um, I've had to have security detail if it's like um, in different places, you know, Uh, I don't want to go too much in depth in that. But, you know, it's it's a different way of being um, for sure. And for the most part, you know, there's there's an aspect that it, that definitely has gotten to me some points that it feels just unsettling, you know, and it, it, it's like, oh, my goodness, like some, you know, 
somebody's really that intentional to try to to get at me. Um, but I'm, you know, as I said, I'm contextualizing it. That's part of the reason why I'm contextualizing it. And the, the historic part of it, but then I just think about people who wake up with no food and no food to feed their kids and having hunger pains. Like, I don't have that. So in terms of just hunger and so I'm so grateful and blessed. And so I have to shift my focus to all of those things um, and all that I have. Um, I would say, though, you know, I hear folks say it's not surprising. I don't know. I, that context of not surprising is always odd to me. Like, I, I, all of this is surprising. Like, I, I get, I get it happens and we understand it happens, but there's still like an element. Like, I feel like we need to be surprised by these things. Like, this is not normal. All this, all that's happening is not normal. Violence is not healthy. Um, and, and we have to keep that a, a part of ourselves. And the, the last thing I'll say about that, this is because I'm going through it, other physicians who have been going through it and black female physicians actually who have gotten threats over the last couple of years have reached out because they're in my network. I didn't even know they were experiencing these things and have had had details for like 18 months. And so it's actually a little bit more common than I realized that's surprising, you know? So I just wanted to say that there are a lot of people out there who are doing their best <laughs> to help support others that are being threatened. Fair. Thank you for, really calling it out that it, it shouldn't be normal. And I think because I follow closely what people put out on social media, specifically Twitter, because med Twitter in particular is really a um, communication form, you know, and there've been publications about um, harassment and threats that um, people talk about and share on social media. And I also know that, you know, specific people, um, specific groups are targeted more than others. And it's horrible. It's unfortunate. It should not be the norm. And I think because what I've seen with people putting their narratives and their experiences on social media, you know, it's um, if you have a voice, if you're a leader, and if you have power because you're a leader in a powerful organization, the people don't, that don't want the status quo to change are going to react. There was a publication that came out uh, just this week entitled The Impact of COVID-19 Pandemic on mental health, occupational functioning, and professional retention among healthcare workers and first responders. And I'm wondering where that specific current aspect plays a role in your equity work. Yes, I mean, I mean, all of it plays a role in terms of how well the work that we're doing within AMA is influencing all of the work. And so while I'm not directly in the space of impacting our behavioral health initiatives, there are teams in AMA that are, right? And so we're working to build the capacity, helping to build the lens, the analysis, to look at things different as these initiatives are, are elevated to help support and, and not only support the physician workforce, but anticipate what are going to be the challenges as we move forward. I think as you know, AMA and other institutions, we look broadly at the physician workforce but not always at the kind of intersection um, and at a different identities. And we did release a report, a publication, ooh, maybe about a month ago on the experiences of minoritized and marginalized physicians, you know, just to, to elevate and present the data in a, in a little bit different way to show that there is an increased burden among some um, physicians that are of color, um, depending on what their identity of color is. 
So, you know, that's that's the role that we're playing directly as a Center for Health Equity, but also holding accountability to the AMA to make sure that when we do collect data on physicians that we're, we're, we're looking in that way. Um, but also just, you know, the, you know, I, I think a lot about return to office. <laughs> that's up for first and front on our minds. And it's played out in many ways of just the, the differences in experiences amongst families um, and, and people and employees um, that play out based on gender, um, and get race and ethnicity, uh, disability, and just having that consciousness is absolutely critical all the time as we work to support our, there's the healthcare workforce, but then you know, our workforces within our other institutions as well. Um, and, it's, it, you know, I think there's been a lot of kind of bumpy roads a little bit, you know, through this process of figuring out return to office for different corporations and associations because of that consciousness hasn't fully been there. So there's a lot of kind of push and, again, accountability to making sure that we are not, we have an equity strategy, right? We're saying, you know, in all that we do. And so as we consider mental health, the, the physician workforce or the healthcare workforce, we consider what it's like for employees inside of the institution that use Kamara Jones's framework, you know, of one valuing all people equally. And from the context, it's kind of, it's, it's really, how do we cherish all people equally? How do we ensure that all people are loved equally? Because value can kind of get, doesn't always deeply meet the moment, but we know that our data shows that we don't, right? So that's, so we have to always hold ourselves accountable to that too. What are the historical conditions or the context of your institution that may set up these or these differences or within society? And three, how do you redistribute resources and whether it's, you know, finances or decision making or sharing power so that these inequities don't exist? And I think that those that strategy has to be thought of all the time as we set up programs and policies and, and anticipate again for the future to help support our physician and, and healthcare workforce. One of the things you've prioritized in your work, and it seems in your journey, is mentorship. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, pick the number of people you want to share who have been mentors to you and how you mentor intentionally. My mentors have probably been less intentional in terms of me seeking them out. And I think it's just, it's just happened because I'm in their space. Um, and I, I feel like I've been really blessed in the sense of folks have really taken an interest in, in me and I feel I've just kind of stepped up and um, guided me in ways. And so I, you know, I think of Dr. Uh, Dorothy Lane, who was my program director when I was a preventive medicine resident. She's a guru. Dr. Lane is is amazing. Let's put it that way. She still wears her heels <laughs> and is, I don't, I don't want to misquote her age. Um, and I'm sure she'd be fine with it, but I don't want to misquote her age, but she's, she's been around for a while and she's just a leader, but she's always just amazingly supportive, believed in me, allowed me to do kind of the preventive medicine residency and the start the office of minority health. And just, I think I just, I learned from that of like the possibility. So if I had to pick what I learned from her, it's just, Things are possible. Let's work through them. You know, just because it hasn't been done, it, let's work through it. You know, there's folks like Dr. Mary Bassett, um, who I learned 
from working with her very closely and intimately, um, you know, about advocacy and, and always thinking about that care for the people that we're serving and also within our institution and not being afraid to speak up and not being able, no matter what potentially the consequences, becoming savvy somewhat about it. And she'd always say, you have a political savviness that I don't particularly have, but I, but I learned from that, like of just being direct and pushing when it needs to be pushed. Um, so that, you know, I, I, those are, those are the two that are standing out in my mind. Um, I'm sure I've had others, but those are the, the two foremost folks that stand out in my mind in terms of professionally. And you mentor, um, I read um, as a founding board member of the Artemis Medical Society, which was described as an international mentoring, networking, and advocacy organization of over 2,500 Black female physicians that was established in 2012. Yes. So I'm not as as much connected to that organization um, now at this point, but there was a tremendous intentionality to make sure that we supported women across the country. And part of that was really elevated at the time of Dr. McStuffins. And really the credit goes to Dr. Maisha Taylor, who is um, an ER doc in, in Texas, and really elevated the story of her daughter seeing the character of Dr. McStuffins and, you know, really being inspired to see someone that looked like her. And Maisha corralled some folks across the country and sent pictures to Disney. And I happened to be one of those, those individuals. But in speaking with people, and, and Black women, most specifically, it was clear that, I mean, there are many, right, <laughs> across the country in terms of physicians, and they were isolated, and they were alone, and they needed, needed a community of one another um, to kind of be with and to support each other, um, and that need is still tremendously there, uh, and so Artemis, Artemis was developed out of that, that consciousness. Um, I will say, you know, it's interesting as I'm in this role, to be honest, because I want to be direct about this. It has been harder to mentor because of time, you know, and I have so many reach outs and there's a little bit of guilt, definitely, that I feel, you know, not being able to be responsive to to everyone, but I have to be able to take care of myself. So, you know, mentorship is important. And if folks have the time, you know, I highly encourage people to do so. I have, you know, my one or two folks that I definitely mentor um, that are physicians and, but I can't take on too much, you know, so, but it's really important. It usually brings something back for me. It's an important relationship. I don't think folks sometimes understand that, that it has to be a, there has to be a benefit, I think for both. It's not, it's not just a one-sided opportunity. I think it's a real relationship that needs to feel meaningful. I'd like to close with asking you a little bit about this entrepreneurial spirit or thread that is woven through your leadership and through your different positions for audience members are like, wait a minute, she's a doctor. Wait a minute. She's advocating. Wait a minute. She's part of a governmental or an advocacy organization. How is that entrepreneurial? Can you clarify that? It's on the roles that I do are entrepreneurial because they're, they're brand new. And I feel entrepreneurial entre, being an entrepreneur is about creativity and starting something from scratch. Um, uh, and not having any kind of framework or foundation fully to do it. Um, and so you're putting forward ideas, a vision, right? And ideas and activities to meet that vision, but then also a team to help develop that vision, a budget to get there as well. Um, all those 
things to me are entrepreneurial and I'm doing it differently in, in the context of an institution. So it's, it's slightly different. So my financial base is probably a little bit more solid than somebody who's doing entrepreneurship, you know, outside of it, but it's that creativity, the flexibility. Um, I think the, also the kind of the, the drive and this, this kind of constant, a little bit of a grind that can get exhausting. Um, because you have to keep moving in order to find a foundation quickly, um, but also be able to pivot quickly. Uh, and so that's why I would view it as entrepreneurial. So my conversation with Aletha struck me for a few reasons. Number one, her honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. And Maybe, audience, you're not aware of some of the risks that people take by using their voice, but this goes to the reason behind the name of this podcast, Visible Voices, and why I really love amplifying people's voices. I am inspired by their strength, by their willingness to put themselves on the line at the risk of consequences, sometimes scary consequences. And to give a little background on the documents that I was referencing, in 2021, JAMA Internal Medicine put out a publication, Prevalence of Personal Attacks and Sexual Harassment of Physicians on Social Media. The authors found that one in four physicians who use social media reported being personally attacked. The most common reason reported for these attacks was engaging in advocacy, especially promoting vaccinations. Other reasons included advocacy related to reducing gun violence, as well as personal attacks on one's race or religion. I really look forward to conversations with you in 2022, and as always, to be continued. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>